Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Nick Hajdukovich. I'm an assistant Washington County attorney. I represent the appellant, the state of Minnesota. Counsel, could you just put the microphone a little bit closer? Sure. That's better. That Thank better? you. Okay. Yes. This court should reverse the Court of Appeals and reinstate the denial of post-conviction relief in this matter because the post-conviction court did not abuse its discretion in denying post-conviction relief by finding that the petitioner below and respondent in this court, Mr. Fagan, failed to meet his burden to show that there were no exigent circumstances in this case. There's two primary counsel, reasons. Counsel, can, who, um, do you agree with me that it is the state's obligation and burden um, when requesting a warrant? When requesting a warrant? Yes. Well, I, I suppose in the sense that it has to demonstrate probable cause to right. the judge, yes. So tell me why that, what impact that has on your argument here. Well, I don't know that it, um, it does in the sense that the, that would be something obviously done pretrial, just like proving a warrant exception. And here we're dealing with a post-conviction petition um, where by statute and by decades of this court's jurisprudence, there is no, uh, there, the burden relies on the other side to show that a, stat, that a um, search would not have been constitutional um, in this circumstance or that they have to prove essentially that they are entitled to relief under the statute. Here there was no warrant. Obviously, if there were, we wouldn't be here, but uh, the petitioner failed to meet that burden. Now, the, the clear text of the statute, the post-conviction statute, places the burden on a post-conviction petitioner as relevant here in two separate places. Uh, the first is the uh, statute dealing with the evidentiary hearing, 590.04 subdivision 3, which states that unless the court orders otherwise, the burden is on a post-conviction petitioner to prove uh, the facts alleged in their petition. And obviously, in order to even get to an evidentiary hearing, a post-conviction petitioner has to allege facts that, if proven, would entitle the petitioner to relief. And here, that's exactly what the district court found did not happen, that Fagan did not assert any facts that would entitle him to relief, other than really asserting that, um, and this is undisputed, that he refused blood and urine testing as opposed to breath testing. Uh, those are the only facts that were really asserted in Fagan's petition to the district court. Again, they're not disputed, but I, I think they were necessary, but there weren't, they were not by any means sufficient. Counsel, um, I know what your position on, uh, is on who has the ultimate burden on the exception. Does the state have the burden to assert an exception to the warrant requirement? I don't, I think the court could certainly say that in terms of putting some sort of burden of pleading or production or something on the state, but I don't think that by the terms of the statute that that exists. And so is it the burden of the uh, post-conviction petitioner to imagine each and every possible exception to the warrant requirement and then to refute each and every one? In some manner of speaking, yes, but I don't think that that is as problematic as it sounds on its face. Uh, the if you look at how th these um, cases work in terms of what possible exceptions could apply, there are probably at most two exceptions that I can possibly imagine that could apply in any given case involving refusal of blood and urine testing. There's, I think depending on how you categorize them, around seven to eight exceptions to the warrant requirement. Um, it depends on if you combine some under the same umbrella or look at them separately, but there's a relatively finite number to begin with. And then we narrow that to what is actually plausible in a case like this. We can pretty much eliminate on its face something like the consent exception, because obviously they didn't consent or uh, they wouldn't have refused. Uh, search incident to arrest, we know that that's not valid under Birchfield in these types of cases. 
things like a Terry search, a plain view exception, all those things are on their face essentially inapplicable. The only two I've been able to identify that could seemingly plausibly apply in cases like this would be first of all, exigent circumstances, and then secondly, in a case where a petitioner was on probation at the time and may have been compelled by the conditions of their probation to submit to testing, which would be under, I guess, a special needs or administrative uh, uh, search type of uh, exception. So if I'm a post-conviction petitioner, I've got to prove affirmatively prove that I wasn't on probation and that there wasn't a condition associated with that? I, I, yes, and I think that's actually relatively easy to do. Um, uh, one could simply do a search of court records and uh, assert in an affidavit or via testimony that there, there is no record of me being on probation and they could testify and in fact I was not on probation. And it's only a preponderance of the evidence standard. So I don't think that that's a terribly difficult burden for them to meet. And if the state has evidence to the contrary, then obviously the judge has to uh, make a decision on what the actual truth of the matter is. Uh, but, I, but I don't think that's terribly difficult. And the same goes with exigency. I think pretty much all of the evidence that would be available to the state in terms of proving that there was exigency is uh, also available to the defendant in terms of proving there isn't. Um, a post-conviction petitioner can call a police officer or officers to the stand just like a prosecutor can. They could uh, ask the, the officer questions about the circumstances of the case. They could uh, get records or uh, ask the officer if the person had to be brought to the hospital or if they would have had to be brought to the hospital for a blood draw. Where no, that Counsel, the thing I'm struggling with is, um, is really sort of a question of first, or not a question of first impression, but it's sort of basic principle. And maybe you've already plowed this ground and I'm simply repeating it. But we have here a, a petitioner who proved that um, there was a warrantless arrest. Uh, exigency is very clearly something that the state would normally prove. We're asking the defendant to, to prove that exceptions, and um, he's in real trouble if he forgets to prove one of those exceptions, don't apply. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It seems to me that burden rests with the state. Um, what, what case law can you point to that makes exigency in this context something that the petitioner must prove? With regard to exigency specifically, I'm not aware of any cases where this specific issue has come up in this manner. So I don't know that there are any decisions in either direction on it. Mm -hmm. With regard more generally to warrant exceptions, um, I think the black case that I cited on my brief is, is a good case. Um, in the sense that it says that had, the, had Mr. Black, the post-conviction petitioner in that case, asserted that his arrest was unlawful, which was one of the issues in that case on appeal, then, uh, or had he proven his arrest was unlawful, then he could have been entitled to relief potentially, but he had failed to prove that. Uh, so that would be... But, but in this case, there was proof that the, uh, that the activity was unlawful. I mean... You know, there there was no warrant, uh, and I mean, for understandable reasons, I get that. But hasn't the hasn't the, the petitioner met that burden here? Well, if there if there is a if there's if the petitioner has met any burden, I would submit that, and I'm not conceding this, but if they have met any burden, it would be essentially a burden of production under uh, 590.01 subdivision 4b3, which is the uh, exception to the two-year statute of limitations that gets them into an evidentiary hearing or the possibility of one at least in the first instance, which is showing that the, a new rule of law here, Birchfield, the Birchfield rule that is, the Birchfield and the other cases that applied it, apply to his case based on the fact that it was a warrantless 
Um, there was no warrant, I should say, and it was blood and urine testing that was required. Um, at most, that gets him to the point where he can request an evidentiary hearing, and then he would have the burden under the post-conviction statute of demonstrating that there wasn't any sort of exigent circumstances in this case. Um, there's some suggestion, at least, that there could be exigent circumstances, but we don't know because the record has never been developed on the issue because the issue was never litigated before. Um, and so I, I think that by the text of the statute, as well as this court's prior cases where the court has held over and over again that a person challenging a post, uh, via post-conviction relief has the burden of showing the facts, demonstrating that they are entitled to relief. Uh, this is really no different. Um, in fact, what this court, and I should back up a little bit and note that this case involves Fourth Amendment concepts, obviously, but I think that under Johnson, it's not strictly speaking a Fourth Amendment case. Um, as counsel pointed out in her brief, under Johnson, this implicates the court's subject matter jurisdiction because it's a challenge to the constitutionality of the, uh, the law under which the defendant was charged. Um, and this court has held um, and even in pretrial challenges to the constitutionality of a statute, that it is the burden on the defendant challenging the constitutionality of the statute to show that the statute is unconstitutional. Um, and that burden is, in fact, beyond a reasonable doubt. I think it might be better seen as a burden of persuasion rather than a burden of proof, but it is a burden nonetheless placed on a defendant. So it would seem incongruous to place a burden on the state in a post-conviction proceeding, but place the burden on the defendant in a pretrial proceeding when the, the challenge is essentially the same thing to the constitutionality of the underlying law. So that also seems problematic here because of how this court decided Johnson. This is a challenge to the constitutionality of the test refusal statute as it applies to Mr. Fagan. It's not purely a Fourth Amendment issue, although there's obviously Fourth Amendment concepts implicated. Now, the uh, petitioner, I'm sorry, the respondent relies heavily on the uh, Trahan case, and I do want to talk a little bit about the Trahan case. Um, because counsel argues that this court has essentially already decided this issue, and I think that needs to be addressed. Because what I want to make clear is that, although Trahan has, I think, a very complicated and confusing procedural history, it is, for all purposes relevant to this appeal, a direct appeal, not a collateral attack on a conviction. And the reason for that is that the only challenge that Mr. Trahan made to his convictions via post-conviction petition was with regard to whether the McNeely decision from the U.S. Supreme Court rendered his conviction unconstitutional um, under the test refusal statute. Birchfield hadn't even been decided when his post-conviction petition was decided, and in fact it was decided after this court, I believe, held oral argument uh, on the, in the Trahan case. The U.S. Supreme Court issues its decision in Birchfield, uh, and then this court ordered supplemental briefing, I believe, and uh, then ultimately rendered a decision. So obviously that couldn't have been litigated at a post-conviction hearing. Um, it hadn't been decided, it wouldn't be decided for years after the hearing. So that's relevant because Trahan was indisputably entitled to the application of the Birchfield rule to his case because it was on direct appeal. So the language in Trahan in which this court talks about the burden being on the state to show exigency um, is really black letter law because that is the state's burden in a challenge made on direct appeal or prior to trial if the challenge were made, the burden is of course on the state to show exigent circumstances and no one is disputing that here today. But the case also doesn't answer the question posed in this case, 
whether a post-conviction petitioner who is making, by this court's own decisions, a collateral attack on a conviction that carries a presumption of regularity, uh, whether they have the burden of, uh, or not. So for those reasons, I don't think Trahan really answers the question, and it seems to me that in Trahan, this particular Counsel, issue. Counsel, I just want to stop you there. Does this case um, carry a presumption of regularity when we're in a retroactive uh, uh, context where we've said, hey, this was wrong. Because what strikes me as unfair is in that particular context, there shouldn't be different burdens of proof on, on the defendants. Like if you, if you brought, if you, you were stopped and you refused to take the test after uh, our decision in Johnson, you know, this, the state is going to prove that at, at the hearings. But it doesn't seem to me when we've said, hey, this was wrong all along, it doesn't seem fair to have somebody who just happened to be arrested and refused before uh, we made that clarifying ruling. Well, what I, what I would submit is that it is fair. And the reason it's fair is because um, this case, uh, well, in Johnson, I should say, the court made clear that it wasn't striking down uh, the test refusal statute facially, that every case would have to be examined on its own facts. Um, and so it's not entirely correct to simply say that this, the test refusal statute is unconstitutional. When you ask uh, for these convictions before the statute was amended, is the conviction unconstitutional? The answer is invariably, it depends. And so for a defendant who pleads guilty, um, never challenges the issue, and then wants to bring it up later, that's fine. Um, this court said they can do that under Johnson, but, um, it's very different to then say that the state has the burden in a context in which, as far as I know, this court has never held that the state has the burden in any other context that's similar. I mean, you could imagine a situation where, say, there's an appeal that comes to this court for somebody who's convicted of disorderly conduct, and they say, as applied, my conviction violates the First Amendment because uh, it was based on protected speech. And this court agrees with that. That doesn't necessarily mean that anybody else convict or who's charged with disorderly conduct and has a case pending can then shift the burden to the state to show essentially this is constitutional under the First Amendment. All this court's prior jurisprudence says that a defendant challenging the constitutionality of a statute, even in a pretrial context, has to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that the statute is unconstitutional. Counsel, I agree with you that this is a case of first impression uh, with regards to the the test refusal statute, but we looked for some analogies, and I'm wondering if maybe confessions and interrogation might be an analogy, where at the pretrial stage, the defendant can allege, I was in custody, I didn't get a Miranda warning. And then the burden shifts to the state to show that the confession was voluntary. W would that be a fair analogy? In some sense, I think it is, because uh, I agree that once the defendant makes the assertion that this is involuntary, uh, the state then does have the burden of showing that it is voluntary or that the Miranda was followed or whatever the, exactly the issue is. But if that were raised in a post-conviction petition, the burden does shift by, this, by the language uh, of the statute to the petitioner. Well, I was wondering about that. We came across a case from 1975 that suggests exactly to the contrary. It's called Doan, D-O-A-N. Have you have come, come across that case? I unfortunately did not come across that case. Okay, in any event, we said that um, once the defendant establishes essentially a prima facie case that the confession was not voluntary, then in post-conviction, the burden shifts to the state to show that it was voluntary. 
that that might be a pretty good analogy, wouldn't it? Well, I, if that, if that's the case, that it's it's certainly possible the court could make that the rule of law here, but. I'm not advocating for it, obviously, because I do think it's inconsistent with the text of the post-conviction statute. But uh, what I would say, for example, another example that it may be somewhat similar is um, self-defense, where at trial a defendant can assert self-defense, and if they meet a burden of production uh, to basically make a prima facie case for each element of self-defense, the burden shifts to the state to show that, in fact, there was not self-defense. And the state has to prove that, obviously, at trial beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, so that could be another sort of similar procedural mechanism where the burden shifts based on a prima facie showing. Um, but, what I, and what, but what I would note about the self-defense example, though, is that it also demonstrates the very real possibility of proving a negative. Uh, you look at all the facts and circumstances just as you would in any other case and determine whether the burden has been met. So while I agree that the court could do what your, what your Honor is suggesting, I don't know that it would be appropriate under the text of the statute, but unfortunately I didn't see the Doan case, so I can't comment on it specifically. Counsel, if I may, I want to go back to Johnson. Um, after, this is on page 682 of the, of the decision, and the phrase I'm about to read to you comes after we've been talking about uh, why it is that the Birchfield rule um, uh, merely regulated the manner, and, and so we're talking about, uh, you know, this is substantive and therefore it's retroactive. And then we go on to say, because of the Birchfield rule, those drivers who refuse to submit to warrantless blood or urine tests cannot be prosecuted unless the state proves that an exception to the warrant requirement applies. Why is that wrong? Because essentially what I hear you telling us now is that that statement is incorrect. And I know you get into in your brief a little bit that you think it's that we were talking just prospectively, and I want to ask you about that as well. But, or maybe that is the answer. Is that why it's wrong? Or tell me why that statement is wrong well, and why I, we wouldn't apply that here. I don't think the statement is wrong. I think that the statement, what, as I read that statement from Johnson, what it's really saying is that this is what the Birchfield rule does going forward, that if you are asked to submit to blood or urine testing and refused, you can, and you can only be prosecuted for that if the state can show that there is either a warrant or an exception to the warrant requirement. And I think that's a necessary part of a retroactivity analysis. You have to figure out what exactly the rule is and how it will apply going forward. Well, I guess, and maybe this is a part of Justice Chudich's question or concern, but why wouldn't, I agree with you that I, I think we meant it to say that it was prospective. I think that's true. But I also think it's true that we intended to say, or we meant to say, or it could be read to say that it applies retroactively as well. Because that just seems like the fair thing to do. We're saying that because this was a substantive, this was a substantive rule, uh, and this rule is, is retroactive, these are the party's responsibilities going back and going forward. Uh, and I guess I'd, I didn't read it that way, um, and the, the court could certainly read it that way if it wants to, but I don't think that it should because First of all, I think it's a right. I think it's inconsistent with the post-conviction statute as well as all the jurisprudence that I've cited in my brief over the decades that have really held to the contrary. That it, and again, this isn't a particularly high burden. It's a preponderance of the evidence standard, where the defense should have access to the same evidence that the state would have access to. But these cases are difficult because some of them are going to be many years old. Some of them will be significantly older than this case. And it's going to be hard for either party in some cases to show that there either was or was not some exception to the warrant requirement years and years ago. Um, but what this court has not said, and neither has the U.S. Supreme Court, 
is that Wait a, a minute, Council. I thought you said earlier in response to my question, it's really easy. Well, it's, it's easy in the sense that the, the parties have access to the same evidence. But what evidence people have access to at this point is, is, the, is the more perhaps practical question. Um, so back to the, the question of why we shouldn't read that language as being retroactive. I think that sort of assumes the validity of opposing counsel's argument here that these convictions are presumptively unlawful uh, post Johnson. And this court didn't, as I read Johnson, I don't think this court said that convictions are presumptively unlawful. Um, this, the, this court didn't say it in Trayon or Thompson, and the U.S. Supreme Court didn't say that in Birchfield. What the court basically says is we have to look at the facts and circumstances of every case on their own individually. Because the question, again, as I said, of... The counsel, is, doesn't that take us back to, I think, your opponent's premise, which is that he, he has met his burden to show that this, that this arrest was unlawful. That's clear. There was no warrant. Um, and so he's met that burden already. He's, he's made that prima facie case, right? Well, I mean, you I, don't disagree with that, do you? I... I guess it depends on what exactly the prima facie case is that needs to be established. If the prima facie case is simply that this, there was no search warrant and that, they, that Mr. Fagan was asked to take uh, blood and urine testing and he refused, yes, if that's all the prima facie case that's required, he did meet that. But I don't think that that is the prima facie case. Um, if anything, if anything, Mr. Fagan has met a... What's, so what's the, the prima facie case in your view then? The prima facie case. It would include case. the exigency, I presume. Yes, exactly, to show that there wasn't an exception to the warrant requirement that occurred, essentially to demonstrate, or at least allege facts that, if proven, would tend to demonstrate that there was no exigency and that there was no other plausible exception to the warrant requirement. Um, so here in this case, they, there was no effort made to do that. And I think if there was anything, any sort of burden that was met by Mr. Fagan, it was a burden of pleading to get him past the two-year statute of limitations. And I'm not even conceding that much, but if there was a burden that was met, it was that. To show, it depends on how this court interprets uh, that, that exception to the two-year time limit when it says establishes that the new rule is applicable to the petitioner's case. Uh, I don't know exactly what establishes mean. It could, it could mean prove by evidence, um, or it could just mean prove that it falls within the general ambit of that jurisprudence. Counsel, can you, the, the parties um, present vastly different views about the, the result or the impact of the rule of law in this case. Um, and I'm wondering if you can help sort out why you view the world so differently from opposing counsel in terms of the number of cases impacted by the rule of law here. Well, I think that we don't, we don't really have a firm grasp of how many cases this will impact, but it could be very significant. It's, it starts obviously with challenges that have been brought already, but it, it could go further than that in the sense that if people start to challenge, there could be other cases that haven't been challenged yet, but even more so than that, we have numerous other cases where people have been convicted of test refusal, whether as a gross misdemeanor or a felony, and that's used to enhance uh, future sentences, whether it be based on raising their criminal history score or enhancing subsequent DWIs. I mean, a, a felony DWI or test refusal conviction means any subsequent a charge will be a felony regardless of whether it's within 10 years or not of the previous one. Um, so it, there is a, there, that is very significant in terms of how that'll go. And the way I could see it playing out is that if this court places the burden on the state, um, defendants could not necessarily through a post-conviction proceeding, but through a collateral challenge um, in, in a subsequent 
DWI prosecution or um, or even some com other completely unrelated felony prosecution if the if the prior conviction is being used to raise their criminal history score or to enhance a, a subsequent DWI make a collateral challenge to the DWI and place the burden on the state uh, which will be uh, which you know then we could be dealing with a completely different county jurisdiction and make life really really difficult for the state um, when somebody has simply waited until they were charged with a new crime and then they collaterally challenge it, saying that the district court never had subject matter jurisdiction over my previous case, uh, so it's void. And I, I think that that would fall under the, I, I, I guess I haven't reviewed that issue specifically recently, but I think that would fall under the relatively narrow class of cases in which a person can make a collateral challenge to a prior conviction um, within a, a separate criminal file. So, so the, the, I think the, um, the consequences here could be pretty significant. So what I'm asking this court to do is to simply follow the text of the post-conviction statute as well as this court's decades of jurisprudence on the issue and, and hold as a rule of law that a person who challenges their, their final conviction under the Birchfield rule bears the same burden as essentially any other post-conviction petitioner does and place the burden of proof on them to show by a preponderance of the evidence facts which would support their claim. I thank the court. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Lawler. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Amy Lawler. I'm an assistant state public defender and I represent respondent Jason Fagan. This is a case that raises both legal and practical questions. The legal question of what the burden is and how it should be assigned based on case law, but also the very pressing practical questions of how a petitioner is supposed to prove a negative in the context that uh, the state here seeks. In terms of the legal question, this is the third time that this court has wrestled with the question of how the burden is to be assigned to a petitioner on remand uh, following a successful challenge to uh, test refusal conviction. In the oral arguments in both Trahan and Johnson, the court pressed both sides on this question and specifically asked about how the burden was to be assigned and raised both of these issues, whether or not the burden under the post-conviction statute requires the petitioner simply to assert that the, that the refused test was both warrantless and uh, without exigent circumstances, or whether something additional is required, as well as what on earth could the alternative be? How could a petitioner ever successfully go to a post-conviction court and say there is no universe, no possibility under which any exigent circumstances could exist? The legal question, I believe, has been squarely answered both in Johnson and in Trahan, where this court did assign on remand the burden to the state or say that the state had failed to meet its burden. And this is supported by sound analysis. It's supported by decades of case law, both by the, this court and by the United States Supreme Court, indicating that the burden rests with the state to prove an exception to the warrant requirement and to prove exigent circumstances. That was the analysis that the Court of Appeals correctly applied here in Fagan. But there are also the practical implications as well. And that is an area where I think that the, the state in particular has not given this court uh, direct answers or a very clear picture of how that could possibly work. When an individual comes into the post-conviction court and says, I refused a warrantless search, I have proven to you there was no warrant, I assert there were no exigent circumstances, 
and the state responds with, well, you haven't proven that there could not be exigent circumstances, what next? Now, there are some obvious situations, the Stavish case or other cases that deal with questions of an individual who uh, is about to be airlifted outside of the jurisdiction of the police for medical treatment or something along those lines, cases where the fact pattern is fairly clear and usually on the face of the complaint. But what about in a case like this where no one has ever asserted that exigent circumstances exist. There are no exigent circumstances listed on the face of the complaint. Never in any of the proceedings has the state given any indication that they couldn't have sought a warrant. And of course, that was not the law at the time. But nonetheless, there's nothing that would indicate that there were exigent circumstances. What is a petitioner to do? How are they to determine what hypothetical schemes could have generated an exception, and how are they to disprove those hypotheticals? That is a pressing question that the state has never directly answered. They've said, well, we have all have access to the same information. Even if that were true, and arguably it is not, that doesn't answer the question of how you could then, as a logical matter, as a, as a logic game, go on to prove the negative. Council, say more about that. In what way, what would you not have access to, the petitioner not have access to that the state does? One example might be if, for example, Fagan went in and asserted there is no, there were no exigent circumstances, uh, and the court then said, well, it's your burden to prove it. Prove that there was a judge available at the time who could have granted a warrant. Fagan would not necessarily have access to the, the documents or the information that would be held by the state, for example, of what judge may or may not have been on call, who had their cell phone numbers, uh, whether there was any informal arrangement. Isn't that what a subpoena is for? Well, at the, first of all, at the, just at the level of trying to get a hearing in the first place, Mr. Fagan wouldn't have access to that information in filing the, the petition in the first place. Then secondly, yes, you're right that at the post-conviction hearing, if he were granted one, he could try to call people. But then there's still the question of who would you call? What if he called a police the, officer? The, you call the very people, sure. the, the one who has the judge's calendars, you call the cop, um, you, you call everybody that the state would be calling, right? Sure. And so let's say we called the police officer and the police officer gets on the stand and says, I don't remember. I don't know. It's been a few years. I wasn't the one making those decisions. Perhaps it's a different police officer because one is retired. Does that then mean that Mr. Fagan has failed to meet his burden because he cannot produce the people or the information because that information well, has... Well, I guess yes, under the rule of law advocated by the state relying on the statute. And that's where I think that there's a real problem both with the law and with the practical function of the law, which is that this is a case that on its face clearly presented no exigent circumstances. He was in the custody of the jail. He was accused of injecting methamphetamine, so there was no issue of any sort of dissip natural dissipation in the blood, as there would be in a breath test. If it's test. so clear, then why, why wasn't there any mention of it in the um, post-conviction court saying, obviously, it's clear there were no exigent circumstances? It was asserted in the post-conviction petition. Uh, the district court didn't uh, hold a hearing and in its decision really focused on the two-year bar and the fact that Mr. Fagan had filed his uh, petition past the two-year bar. But I think that does go to the question, is that enough to assert that there was no, that there were no exigent circumstances? What more is needed? And I think one analogy might be to a case that this court would not have any record of about how it was handled at the district court level, which is the Haywood case. Uh, and 
this is an area where no litigation has reached the court because the parties all kind of agreed about how it would happen. When people filed petitions seeking to vacate their convictions under Haywood, which was the BB gun case, generally the parties looked at the complaint. The, the petitioner would say, look, the complaint said I had a BB gun. That's not a crime anymore. Then the state could come back and say, well, actually, there was something additional. We can prove that it, it was still a firearm under the law, and the district court worked it out. But nothing was required in those cases past the initial assertion, I, I had a BB gun, you should vacate my conviction. And I think the same type of analysis applies here, where Mr. Fagan went into the court and said, I was convicted of violating a statute that now following the Birchfield rule and now Johnson that's retroactive, I was convicted of a statute um, where the, the conduct was no longer a crime because I was convicted of refusing a search where there was no warrant and I assert there was no warrant and I assert there were no exigent circumstances. What next? If the state believes there was an exigent circumstance, then the state should assert that exigent circumstance, whatever that is, whether that's a medical emergency, whether that was unavailability of a judge, or whatever other hypothetical scenario. If the state believes there was some such scenario, it should then assert it. I think that's the only way that you can read the, the line of case law that ends with Trahan and Johnson that relies heavily on Welsh and all what of those What about Black? Other. We had some exchange of discussion there about Black, that Black might support uh, Appellant's argument here. You know, and I think that the, the problem with relying on any of the, the cases that deal with, uh, you know, the burden on the state, a lot of what the, case, the, the state is resting on is cases that involve suppression of, of searches that did already happen or that rely very specifically on Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. This is a different type of case, and that was already dealt with very squarely in the Johnson decision. This is about uh, jurisdiction and about removing conduct that the state previously had the ability to punish and removing it from that realm. Now that behavior is no longer punishable. And so when you look at all of the line of case law about the state having the obligation to prove jurisdiction at any level, uh, and then looking on further to the all of the uh, plethora of case law that establishes that it is the state that must establish an exception to the warrant requirement, that law is clear. And I especially also want to focus on Trahan because the state is making the assertion that somehow Trahan and Fagan are procedurally different because even though Trahan brought his petition by post-conviction relief, it was done after he had filed a direct appeal and stayed the direct appeal. Many, many months later, he did file the petition under McNeely uh, seeking to have his conviction vacated. Trahan still had to meet the same burden under the post-conviction statute that Fagan did. The fact that the petition uh, was filed after a stayed direct appeal didn't change the language of 590 that required a petitioner to prove uh, that he was entitled to relief by a fair preponderance of the evidence. And Trahan did what Fagan did, what Johnson did, what, what, the, what we have seen in these cases, which is that they asserted there was no warrant and there were no exigent circumstances. And beyond that assertion then, the state didn't come back with any sort of response to argue that there was a warrant or that there were exigent circumstances. And that's still true here. The state has not once come before any court and said, we believe there was an exigent circumstance that applied to Fagan, here's what it is. Because none exist on the face of the record and the state isn't arguing that one could be found if they tried to dig deeper. Counsel, what would be the rule of law then in regards to the post-conviction statute and how it applies so that it's not opening the door and, and causing some of the issues that was addressed by counsel? 
Well, I think that the rule of law is simply that the post-conviction statute means what it says. It requires a petitioner to prove that they're entitled to relief. Here, they meet that burden by showing that there was a warrantless search and that they're, they are asserting there are no exigent circumstances. They meet that prima facie burden. And that doesn't mean that the state cannot then come back with any sort of response. You know, of course the state then has the ability to respond with actually we do have records or documents or some other indication that there were exigent circumstances. Of course they have that opportunity to prove it at court at that point. But that initial burden is met by the petitioner making that claim that it was a warrantless search and that there were no exigent circumstances. Now, what would your response be to the state's um, posing the problem of underlying convictions that would support, you know, if you have a gross, then it might be a felony and the points, et cetera. Well, first there's the two-year rule. And the, the two-year clock that started ticking on, a, on the retroactive application that Johnson started is still ticking. And so if at some point three years down the road, someone realizes that they have a prior conviction or an enhanceable conviction, they'll hit that two-year time bar. So I think that that is a key issue, which is just the, the limitation in time. But there's also the issue of just, I think the state has tried to raise the specter that there are you know, untold number of these cases out there. And while it's true, we, we might not have all of them in our office, we know fewer than a dozen right now. And there probably are more out there. There are probably people thinking about it, or perhaps there are people with private counsel. But these are limited situations. Most cases don't involve blood or urine tests. Most, people, most cases don't involve um, the, the use of chemicals as opposed to the breath test. The, the vast majority of cases that we saw um, were resolved by the decision that, set, that dealt with breath testing. Uh, and the remainder of the cases, the blood and urine, are a very small subset. There's also, I think, all, additionally, the, the case law that says that exigent circumstances are, are relatively rare. Uh, and I think that's an issue that the, that the state hasn't dealt with squarely, which is that most of these cases are not going to have exigent circumstances. Most cases don't involve someone who uh, is about to be airlifted out of the jurisdiction or some sort of other emergency that makes it impossible to get a warrant in time, uh, particularly in the context of a blood or a urine search where there was no risk of dissipation. With Mr. Fagan, he had injected methamphetamine was the allegation. There would be no reason why a warrant couldn't have been obtained the next day while he was in the custody of the jail uh, to see if he had, in fact, uh, been driving under the influence of methamphetamine. And so when the state really tries to raise the specter of all of these cases, it's not I think being, um, it's, it's not able to cite to anything that would indicate that most cases are blood and urine as opposed to breath. And it's also not directly addressing the fact that exigent circumstances are rare. They're not immediately present in this case and it's not likely that there are going to be all that many cases where those types of exigent circumstances exist. I just wanna have you take, uh, take us through the, statute, the statutory argument. So in 590.04 subdivision three, um, the statute provides, unless ordered by the court, the burden of proof of the facts alleged in the petition shall be upon the petitioner to establish, et cetera. So, so what exactly is your argument here? That, that a petitioner meets that burden when they assert that they were convicted of the statute that was dealt with under Johnson and Trahan, that they are convicted of something that is now presumptively no longer a crime, and that they refused a test in which the state had no warrant and there were no exigent circumstances. So your argument is not that 
you're not relying on the first clause unless otherwise directed by the court. You're not relying on that. You're saying we had a burden, we met it. Because right. we, because the Birchfield rule retroactively applies to us and that's it. Right. And I think, of course, the court could reach that result by invoking that first clause. Uh, you have the authority to make any order that you would like in terms of assigning the burden. But, right. Your statutory argument is, yes, we had the burden and we met it. Yes. That there is this prima facie burden to show that he, that Fagan or anyone else petitioning is under that class of people identified in Birchfield and Trahan and Johnson, that they were in a class of people that refused a warrantless search and no exigent circumstances applied. And once that assertion is made uh, and you show that you were convicted of test refusal and you assert there was no warrant and there were no exigent circumstances, that burden has been met. Counsel, maybe this is a quibbling pleading point, but I see a reference to no exigent circumstances in the memo. Mm -hmm. I don't see it in the petition. Does that make a difference? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the, the argument has always been that I was convicted of a statute that following the Birchfield line um, is no longer good law. It punishes conduct that it can no longer punish. Here's why I should prevail. Here's why I fall under that class of people that was identified in Birchfield and Trahan and later in Johnson. So the analysis is all there, but I think that that does go to the heart of the issue is how much is enough because I don't think that there's much more that a petitioner can do or should be required to do once they they make the assertion that there is no warrant. There's no addition, there shouldn't be any additional requirement that you go into showing why not. Your client didn't request an evidentiary hearing. The state didn't either, right? Right. So there was no evidence one way or the other on the exigency. Right. Just an assertion by your client through a memorandum attached to the, the petition. Yes. And, and the memorandum, of course, included some of the documents about the, the police officer who asked for the search and Fagan refusing. But I think that does go to the heart of the issue. Once Mr. Fagan asserted that he would, was entitled to relief because he refused a warrantless search and there were no exigent circumstances, does the state then have the burden of coming back and saying, yes, in fact, either there was a warrant or there were exigent circumstances. The state didn't request an evidentiary hearing. The state didn't um, submit additional documents to show there were exigent circumstances, and the state didn't assert that there were exigent circumstances. There's never been an assertion that there were exigent circumstances at play in this case, and the district court in its order did not find that there were exigent circumstances. And so that really does go to the heart of the matter of what's enough to meet a burden under the post-conviction statute, because of course Mr. Fagan does have a burden. Is it enough to simply go into court and say, look at all of these lines of cases. I fall into the class of people that Birchfield covers. I was convicted of something that is no longer a crime. Please vacate my conviction. Our position is that is enough. Post-conviction is kind of a strange combination of civil and criminal. It sounds to me like what you're really urging is that the state has an, must assert an affirmative defense in connection with this post-conviction petition. Am I right about that? I disagree with that. I think it's more that the state has to assert jurisdiction. And that really goes back to Johnson, which is the, the argument that I was convicted of something that is not a crime. The state always has the, the obligation to prove jurisdiction, to prove subject matter jurisdiction specifically to the district court. What Birchfield and Trahan and then most specifically recently Johnson established is that when you convict someone of something that is not a, no longer presumptively a crime, that really is a question of jurisdiction. It's not a, a Fourth Amendment 
search question, it's a jurisdiction question. Uh, and here, we've made that showing then that under Birchfield and Trahan and now Johnson, there is a jurisdiction problem. There's a problem that he was convicted of something that's not a crime, and the state then didn't come back and say, why, yes, we do have jurisdiction. There was a warrant, or there were exigent circumstances, let us show you. The state rested on the fact that we could not prove the negative, that we could not prove that there was no universe in which any exigent circumstances existed, which shouldn't be necessary in a fact pattern in which the state has never asserted that there were exigent circumstances. So how do you get there if there was a hearing? What do you do then? Do you have to, does your person have to come in? Does your client have to come in and say, this is, there were no exigent circumstances? I mean, you can assert it, but once you get to that, once you get to an actual hearing, what happens then? It seems you're arguing pleading stuff, which I think is what Justice Lillehug was getting at. But at some point, how do you make that case to begin with? Well, I, th I think this goes to the heart of our assertion that the state is the one that has to make the case. And once we make the assertion in the... So this is, but this is my question, because we're talking about, you're talking about kind of pleading burdens. Yeah. And I, I guess the way I was thinking about the case is what's the actual burden of proof? Mm -hmm. And so how do you respond? So, so you're saying there actually is a burden of proof of the state if you're, you're, you're going to get to an evidentiary hearing. No. It's, it's, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> our, our argument is that the defendant does meet his burden when he makes these assertions that it's, he falls under that Birchfield class, that it was warrantless and there were no exigent circumstances. And then the ball's in the state's court. And so the state might just say, you're right, vacate the conviction. We don't need a hearing at all. Uh, or it might ask for the hearing so that it can attempt to then meet the burden that is now shifted, now that we've made that prima facie So case. they should be treated so... so your client should be treated like someone prospectively going forward. It's, it's just like if they were charged with a crime, this, if, you know, if, if the thing happened today and they were going to go into court, if the arrest happened today they were in the refusal, they were to go into court, it would be up to the state to prove that there was either a warrant or some kind of exigent circumstance. And you're saying that your client's in a parallel position to that. Yes, and I'd say that my client is in a parallel position to Trahan and to Johnson, uh, which is that once that initial showing is made, jurisdiction is challenged. But we wouldn't even have to rely on Trahan and Johnson as precedent to get to the results you want. Correct. Now, just so I understand your position, it is true that in, this in the memorandum attached to the petition, you, you pleaded, your client pleaded, that there were no exigent circumstances. But as I understand your argument, you wouldn't even need to plead that. All you have to do is plead, there was no warrant. I'm not sure I would go that far. I do think that we need to make the argument that we fall into that Birchfield class, the, that class of people that's covered by Birchfield, Trahan, Johnson. Um, I suppose you're welcome to go one step further and argue that our burden is even lower. But I do think that, that the, the statute does place that initial burden on the petitioner. A to, pleading burden. But, yeah, yeah, I think that when you go into the district court, and I don't think it matters whether it's in the petition or the attached memorandum laying out the reasons for why the conviction is invalid, but it has to make that initial argument to the district court that what I'm convicted of is no longer a crime. You lack jurisdiction under Birchfield and Trahan. I have been convicted of something that's not a crime. Vacate my conviction. I think that is enough well, to meet the initial Let me follow up on Justice Thiessen's question, though. Let's say you actually had a hearing in this case, mm -hmm. and then it's your your client's burden to put on a case, right? Yes. Okay. So your client would have to uh, put in evidence that there was no warrant. 
I'm not even sure if it would need to be evident. Well, I think that it's enough that in this you need case... You to show you're in the birth shield class. Yes, we would need to do that. I think so it could be... you'd have to show there wasn't a warrant. Yes. I, okay, I think we then, could do that with just the complaint or even an agreement between the parties. I don't think there's any dispute pr Probably here. could do that. Yeah. Then you, you allege in the petition there were no exigent circumstances, would you then put on a case that there weren't? I mean, would your client say, gee, as far as I know, there was nothing unusual about this case? Well, that's, I think, the, the question of where you draw the line. I don't think that the defendant has to do anything beyond assert that there were no exigent circumstances, because then you delve into the realm of trying to attempt to prove a negative or trying to take on a burden that must be borne by the state to prove subject matter jurisdiction and to prove the existence of exigent circumstances. I think but that's one statute puts the burden to prove the facts on the petitioner. And the fact, it seems to me, is whether or not there was an exception to the warrant requirement. I mean, isn't that the fact? You, you, you make this argument that, well, I was my client was convicted of something that is no longer a crime. Well, that's only true if there was an exigency. Well, he was convicted of a statute that laid out behavior that is no longer a crime. and so I Only think if there wasn't exigency. It's true that it has to either be either a warrant or the state had to prove exigent circumstances. And so I think that that, that so might be So if you have to prove that there wasn't a warrant, then why don't you have to prove that there wasn't exigency under the plain language of the statute? Because I think that it's enough for the petitioner to go in under the statute and establish the facts by a prepare, fair preponderance of the evidence that he was convicted of refusing a chemical test, and then to assert this test was not supported by a warrant, it was not supported by exigent circumstances. I think that's enough to say that, it, that the facts alleged in the petition meet that burden. Yeah, but you've got one, one, you said you have to prove something, that's with evidence, and then you have to assert something, that's apparently without evidence, is that right? And how do you distinguish between proving and asserting um, and, and those two sub-elements of, of the new crime? Well, I think that's what you wrestled with in Trahan and in Johnson, where in all of these cases, the petitioner comes to the court and says, makes a challenge to the court's jurisdiction by saying, I was convicted of refusing a test that in the past didn't require a showing of either a warrant or exigent circumstances. That statute no longer exists. I've proven to you that I'm in the class because I was convicted under that old statute. And then I assert that. So isn't the easiest argument just that this statute doesn't exist. The statute I was convicted of doesn't exist anymore. And so isn't your easiest argument is to say, I'm saying that, and now it's up to the state to prove that it was. And so the burden is on the state to prove all of those things. My time has expired. Yes, it is. Uh, it's certainly the easiest and cleanest. And I think that that's what Trahan and Johnson, Johnson in particular, dealt with. It's that this created a class of people. Uh, and so once you show that you're in that class because you were convicted of a statute that existed at this point in time that didn't require either a warrant or exigent circumstances, I have shown that to you. I have shown that I was convicted. Uh, and now I assert that there is no uh, warrant and there was no exigent circumstances. And then we move on from there. Uh, one last question. I mentioned in um, my discussion with Mr. Hajdukovic, I mentioned this Doan case. Has that been on your radar screen or any cases involving uh, voluntariness of confessions? No. Um, and specifically, we don't think that that line of, although I, it sounds like Doan might be helpful to us, I don't think that the Fourth Amendment suppression cases are useful for the same reason that this court identified uh, in, in deciding Johnson, which is that this isn't an it would issue. It would be the Fifth Amendment, wouldn't it? 
on a confession? Yes. Well, sure. But the this in this case, the test never took place. And so that's what makes it different from the line of cases that deal with um, the Fourth, Fifth, and Eighth Amendment. This is a case that goes to jurisdiction, not to the constitutional question of either a search or a confession or some other um, handing over of evidence that actually took place. Hold on, Justice Hudson. Um, I just want to clarify something on Trahan. You know, it, it seems to me that unless we interpret Trahan the way the state is as a direct appeal case and not a post-conviction case, and I understand why you, you say we should look at it as a, as a post-conviction case, but unless we do that, I, I think implicitly in the state's argument is that, that our statement in Trahan about, you know, it's the state's burden to prove exigent circumstances is inconsistent with a whole line of cases, and this maybe is part of the chief's point, that says that burden is, that's a part of the petitioner's burden to prove that fact. And I'm just curious about your reaction to that, because maybe we need, if that's right, then do we need to clean up our, what we said in, in Trahan, unless you look at it as a direct appeal case? I don't that make think, sense? I don't think that you, that you need to clean up Trahan. And when you look at the language in Trahan, there was nothing that indicated that Trahan relied on the fact that it was a direct appeal. There was some reliance on Stavish, uh, but that was really more to rely on the general requirement that the state be the one to bear the burden of proving exigent circumstances. And the fact pattern in Trahan was like Fagan, which is that both parties simply assert there's no exigent circumstance. Well, then what do you do? You've you're under the post-conviction statute where the, the petitioner bears the burden. The petitioner shows I was convicted of a crime that is presumptively no longer a crime. I'm asserting to you that there, there is no warrant and there was no exigent circumstance requirement. What next? We know that they were convicted of a statute that under Birch, Field, and Trahan, and Johnson is no longer a crime. What is, how does the burden then shift after they've made that initial showing? And I think that that does squarely comport with the language of the post-conviction statute, which requires that petitioner to show by fair preponderance of the evidence. Is it more likely than not? Well, I was convicted under a statute that was no longer, that is presumptively no longer a crime. Well, one last question, Ms. Lord. What's your response to the state's argument that Johnson is, is prospective? Well, this court very recently decided Johnson, and you're in the best position to know what Johnson required, but the language in Johnson was quite clear about the retroactive application. And what we've seen both in the Court of Appeals and also in the few district courts that have tried to wrestle with how to apply Johnson since that decision, the district courts have had no problem with saying, well, of course you can't prove a negative. State, show us. If you're going to argue that there's a, an exigent circumstance, go ahead. You've got the chance. But otherwise, they're showing that they're under Birchfield, Trahan, and Johnson. This is presumptively no longer a crime. That's enough. Thank you, counsel. Um, Mr. Hajdukovich, you have ten, uh, 10 minutes for rebuttal. I want to pick up with one of the last things counsel just talked about, which is her repeated assertions that convictions such as these are presumptively unlawful. And as I said in my principal argument, that simply is not the case. Um, the only authority I think that supports the claim that a conviction for test refusal under these circumstances is presumptively unlawful is the very same Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that counsel says is not helpful to the analysis here. Um, because those cases say obviously that a warrantless search is presumptively unreasonable. That's a very different say thing than saying that a criminal conviction is presumptively unlawful. 
Um, so I wanted to emphasize that point, that none of the cases say that these convictions are presumptively unlawful, and the post-conviction statute would seem to, generally speaking, say the opposite of that. Um, and in this court's prior cases, uh, as I cited in my principal argument as well, about carrying a presumption of regularity. Um, there's simply no authority I would uh, submit that actually asserts the respondent's argument here. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the exigent circumstance issue and counsel's statement about proving in any universe um, that there were no exigent circumstances. There's only one relevant universe here, and it's a pretty small universe. Um, it's limited in its facts. Um, there's, it's simply not this massive undertaking that counsel would make it out to be to prove that there are, there are, not, are not exigent circumstances. Um, so I think that that's overstated. Uh, the language is overstated. I would also note uh, that with regard to some so of the can questions. So can I go back to the presumptively unlawful thing? Sure. So if, assuming when this conviction happened, we knew how Birchfield was gonna, all these cases were gonna come down, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so assume that's the universe back in 20, well, I don't remember when this, I'm sorry, when the conviction was. But um, in that case, what would you have had to do? If that were the case, and again, assuming that the legislature hadn't amended the statute as they, as they did after Birchfield. Well, assume that they amended the statute. Okay. To, I mean, well, sure. Okay. And, and assuming that for some reason the police didn't follow it, and they, you know, so they didn't get a warrant, basically. They, we would then have to show um, that there were exigent circumstances if that were challenged by the defense. Um, I don't see that as an element of the crime per se. I see it as a, a pretrial issue that would be litigated just as it would have been pre-Birchfield. Um, and that's one thing I wanted to note, actually, is that the, this conviction was in 2012. Um, and so the law at the time, obviously, was that was even pre-McNeely. So there was no need for anybody to plead exigency. But the point of retroactivity, right, is that you, sh you should have, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea, that it was constitutionally required that you did, even though maybe you didn't know at the time it was constitutionally required. Right. But that's the import of these line of decisions. So if we go back to 2012 and assume that if you're going to get an implied consent conviction, you have to prove either a warrant to take the test and it was refused, or that there were exigent circumstances, because that would be what the implication of those cases are. So in that case, you didn't prove that, right? And so why in that circumstance is this conviction then right now not presumptively unlawful? That, seems to, that actually seems to follow logically. I guess I, I would respectfully disagree, and that is because of the distinction between a, um, well, I guess there's, it's for a couple reasons. One is because it's obviously an as-applied um, challenge that we're dealing with here. If the statute had been found facially unconstitutional, I think that your statement, Justice Thiessen, may very well be actually quite spot on. But this is an as-applied challenge, and the, the courts have not really um, had to wrestle with just exactly how broad that is because the rule is pretty straightforward. If there's a warrant or an exception to the warrant requirement, um, you can be prosecuted. If there isn't, you can't be. And so the, the scope of the test refusal statute in these retroactivity cases is... You know, it's, it is an applied challenge, but practically speaking, it's not, right? Because you can't get one without a warrant. And you can't get one without exigent circumstances. I know that we said that you have to go back and do it, but I mean, in practice, you can't convict someone under this statute without a warrant and without exigent circumstances. And that, and so the, to the extent that that's true, this statute, the, or the, the, it, was un, it was unconstitutional. That's true, but, the, but again, I think that it just sort of begs the question, though, of 
are there exigent circumstances in a given case? Do we just assume that there aren't um, unless proven otherwise? So I, I think that it's a fair point, but it also just sort of begs the ultimate question of are there exigent circumstances and how do we know that and how do we make that determination? But and that's really counsel, the question. Counsel, as a practical matter, though, we know after McNeely and we know after Stavish that exigent circumstances are far and few in between. Well, I would, I would agree that they are um, not present in the majority of cases uh, post-McNeely. But what I would say is that there are certainly facts in this case that at least suggest that exigency may have existed if they were fully developed. We just don't know. I mean, we have a situation here where someone had apparently injected himself with a drug, although I don't know that we know what the certainty council asserts what the drug actually was. Um, and these, in, these drug cases with um, impaired driving are very tricky because of the statutory framework and how the facts play out at trial because the state has to prove that they were under the influence or had uh, a specific substance in their system, not just generally a controlled substance, a specific substance. So getting a warrant fairly quickly may be significant. If it's a Schedule One or Two substance other than marijuana, the mere presence is sufficient. If it's not, though, um, if it's a three or four or marijuana, then you have to show they're actually under the influence. So the actual amount in their system in a blood test especially may be quite significant to the prosecution. So, counsel, let's assume you're right on, the rule of, on what the rule of law should be, that the uh, petitioner has the burden to disprove exigent circumstances. Would you agree the petitioner has pleaded that there were no exigent circumstances? They have made an argumentative assertion in their post-conviction petition that there were no, or actually in the memorandum, but I, I don't dispute that that's sufficient. Um, so then if you're right, wouldn't the rem remedy be a remand for an evidentiary hearing? I don't think so. There was no evidentiary hearing requested here by the petitioner in the case. And what the courts have said over and over again with regard to post-conviction petitions is that mere argumentative assertions are not sufficient to essentially meet the burden of pleading or production, whatever you want to, however yeah, you want Yeah, the statute says if there is a, a question of fact, the district court must have an evidentiary hearing, right? That's true. Well, if it's post-conviction court. I assume, I, I guess I don't know how that would work if there was an actual disputed facts, but no hearing was requested by either party. But uh, here I don't know that the facts, we don't have disputed facts per se because the petitioner didn't really allege any facts outside of demonstrating what type of testing was requested in the case. Well, the petitioner alleged there are no exigent circumstances. There were some documents attached which on the face of them don't show any exigent circumstances in connection with the arrest. So isn't that enough to get to an evidentiary hearing? I would, I would disagree with that because the, the petition itself, the, the police reports that are attached um, are short reports that basically, there's one report actually in the implied consent advisory form and they show the type of tests that were refused and sort of the circumstances of how that refusal arose. They don't go into all the facts of what happened in the actual case itself. I, I attach some other reports that were lengthier to my response to the petition to essentially demonstrate to the post-conviction court that, you know, it's possible there are exigent circumstances here. We don't know, but it's not fair to simply dismiss that claim out of hand. Now, the, the state's alternative request for a remedy here is, um, as Your Honor suggested, to remand for an evidentiary hearing. But our primary request for relief is that the court simply reverse the Court of Appeals and reinstate the denial of post-conviction relief because simply asserting there are no exigent circumstances, that's an argumentative assertion. It's essentially a conclusion of law with no facts to back it up. If there were facts that backed it up, then they might, then they might very well have been entitled to a hearing, but that simply wasn't done here. You know, I wonder... Um 
I wonder, I may be oversimplifying this, but it seems to me it is undisputed that there was no warrant uh, provided here, uh, and ultimately no proof, regardless of who had the burden of proof, there's no proof uh, that exigent circumstances ever occurred. Um, is, is that enough? Um, just as a practical matter, uh, you need an exigent circumstances, no ex exigent circumstances, and no exigent circumstances were provided, uh, petitioner wins, we move on. Um, why, why isn't, from a result standpoint, isn't that sufficient here? Because the petitioner had the burden of pleading, at the very least, sufficient facts to show um, that... The petitioner did that. I mean, they attached our documents and, and um, argument saying there's no exigent circumstances. Nobody came forth with any proof, um, regardless of whose burden it is, case over. Well, and I, I think that, again, the, the question of who 